Hello and welcome to another podcast by the Vatican Observatory Foundation. Uh, our guests today are Brother Guy Consiomagno and Larry Lebowski. I will let you two introduce yourself, Brother Guy. Hi, yeah, I'm Brother Guy Consiomagno. I'm the director of the Vatican Observatory. I did my undergrad at MIT, which is where I met Larry. He was my TA when I was learning how to use a telescope. Uh, I became a theorist immediately afterwards. And I uh, did my doctorate at Arizona, where we encountered each other again. In fact, uh, Larry's wife, Nancy, typed my PhD thesis, so she's probably the only person who actually has ever read it. My research now is about asteroids and meteorites. And I'm Larry Lebowski, uh, an undergraduate at Caltech, graduate student at MIT. And while I did Saturn's rings for my uh, PhD, after I left there and came eventually to the University of Arizona, my field of research was basically saying we've got meteorites in our laboratories. We know they came from asteroids. How do we make that connection? And I'm Bob Tremblay. I do any number of various things for the Vatican Observatory Foundation, including now podcasts. So, so this, uh, this one is Death by Meteorite. Should humans be worried? And let's start off with the first question here. What are the chances of a meteorite or comet will end human life on Earth? Yikes. I tell people if you're worried about that, there's two things you can do immediately to improve your odds. Stop smoking and wear your seatbelt, because both of those are far more likely to do you in than a meteorite coming and hitting the Earth. I mean, in recorded history, basically, one person has been hit by a meteorite, and that was only secondary. It bounced off the ground and then hit her while she was sitting on her sofa or lying on her sofa. On the other hand, though... The odds are small. The impact, no pun intended, would be huge if it did happen. And as we saw you know, eight, seven, eight years ago in Chelyabinsk in Siberia, there are objects that come close to the Earth, and even if they don't hit and kill a person, the uh, sonic boom shattered glass and sent a thousand people to uh, the hospital. The fact is that we are spreading more and more across the face of the earth and becoming more and more targets for this sort of thing. Uh, Larry and I shared a thesis advisor at uh, MIT in, in John Lewis, and John wrote a book about the reign of uh, uh, iron and ice, I think was the book, on this topic. And one of the things I love to quote from him is, to remember that no one has ever been killed by a falling meteorite and lived to tell the tale. Which reminds you that, you know, we, we have a limited bias to our statistics. I actually read that book, and um, the very beginning of it has uh, a story that I thought was a relating to the Chelyabinsk impact. No, it was Constantinople in like 1400, or four, 472. Uh, it sounded just like the Chelyabinsk impact. It, it was amazing. People have talked about uh, meteorite impacts as, you know, changing history in a number of ways, most of which I don't believe. Uh, I don't think that it was the cloud of a meteorite in the sky that made the cross that made Constantine become Christian. That seems highly unlikely. Uh, I don't think that it was a meteorite that knocked St. Paul off his horse and led to his conversion, though there is a, a prominent meteorite scientist who insists that might be the case. In both cases, it's because meteorites have fallen all the time, and yet most of the time people haven't gone off to, you know, change the world as a result of it. The way that meteorites have changed the world is providing iron in a form that human beings could use to start what became the Iron Age. So 
Another question I have here is, how can we stop a meteor or comet from impacting the Earth? Well, first of all, it's a meteoroid that you would be Meteoroid, yes. I, I, I am very fussy about that. A meteor is a flash of light you see in the sky. A meteoroid is a physical body. But yes. And the answer is, it is not easy to do. Um, the previous podcast, we were talking about science fiction movies. And it is amazing how many times the science fiction movies have gotten it really, 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 really wrong with respect to how you would, you know, how they fall to the earth, number one, and number two, how you would stop them in space. One of the things that most people don't appreciate is how small the earth is in space and how difficult it is for any particular meteorite to find it and hit it. Even if we have a really good orbit, Odds are that uh, until it's really close, we will still have an uncertainty of, you know, maybe 50%. Is it going to hit or not going to hit? And one of the problems with going up there with Bruce Willis and the giant bomb is that if you take an object that has a 50% chance of hitting and you blow it into a schmitherings of zillion objects, you go from 50% that it's going to hit to 100% certainty that half of it's going to hit. And that's not necessarily an improvement. If you go by the physics of it, if you take a very, very large thing, break it up into lots of little pieces, the mass is still the same. So the energy involved of what's going to hit the Earth it hasn't changed. I mean, you may burn some of them up in the atmosphere, but most of the energy is still going to be doing a yep. lot of damage on the ground. People don't appreciate where the damage comes from uh, an asteroid hitting the top of the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, it's sort of like uh, people think if you're dropping an atomic bomb, you drop it on the city, and it, you, when it hits the ground, it blows up. When, in fact, the most devastating way of having a bomb is to have it explode in the atmosphere and let the shock wave knock things down. And that's exactly what happens when you've got a meteoroid. You can do the physics. One half mv squared. M is the mass of the thing hitting us. V is really, really big, like uh, 30 to 60 kilometers per second. And you square that. So suddenly, even a, uh, a relatively small object is coming at you with the same energy as an atomic bomb. And it's going to detonate when it hits the atmosphere at a point where it can't move the air out of the way anymore. And so it has to suddenly stop and all of its kinetic energy is turned into heat. And that's going to do a couple of things. It's going to send a, a blast wave, a shock wave that will knock things down. It will also deposit an enormous amount of energy into the atmosphere, setting off a lot of chemical reactions that will change the chemistry in the atmosphere. And the blast, if it does hit the ground, will throw dust into the air, which can go into the stratosphere. And then if the thing is big enough, put air that stays in the atmosphere and doesn't, or dust rather, put dust in the atmosphere that doesn't settle down for a couple of years, cutting off sunlight. And that's what people think probably, you know, helped do in the, the, the poor uh, dinosaurs. I mean, the, the largest impact that has occurred in the last 120 years, a little over 100 years, was Tunguska in Siberia. And there is no crater. It basically was a object, probably a, a fragile uh, asteroid, a small asteroid that, as it came into the Earth's atmosphere, blew up in the Earth's atmosphere and basically 
the, all the damage was done by the air pressure of the explosion. And yet there was quite a bit of damage. A lot of trees got knocked down, but no crater. And a little bit of dust maybe in trees, embedded in trees. I have a lecture about asteroids I've given several times, and at science fiction conventions, uh, I ask all my audiences, have any of you heard of Tunguska? And at science fiction conventions, three-quarters of the audience raise their hand. At normal libraries or something like that, not one. Well, it shows the power of science fiction and educating people. And I remember uh, shortly, uh, they said the... Uh, January after the Chelyabinsk impact, there was an asteroid that was discovered, like like December 31st, that plowed into the Atlantic Ocean on January 1st, the next day. So find it, and then it hits the Earth. Yeah. And I and I got asked about Chelyabinsk. You know, why didn't we see it coming? Well, it was about the size of a Volkswagen. It was as black as coal, and it came from sunward. And we don't have any telescopes looking that direction. We need telescopes in Venus orbit looking up toward Earth orbit to find those kind of things. And we don't got those yet. That's, that said, we can go back to your original question. How would you move if you've got a 50 or 75 year lead time and you know something is, is a potential uh, hazardous asteroid? There are a couple of tricks you can do to make its orbit slightly change. Uh, we're now understanding how orbits are affected by the absorption and re-radiation of sunlight. It's something called the Arkovsky effect and was rediscovered three or four times. The Arkovsky talks about it in, what, 1905, something like that. In the something Russian. like that, yes. And then Orch discovered Yarkovsky's paper, which no one else could find for about 40 years, and he wrote about it a little bit. And then a fellow grad student of uh, Larry and mine, uh, Charlie Peterson at MIT. Very good wrote a series of papers about it in the 70s. It wasn't really until the 90s that it got into our community and people recognized. But the, the idea is, if you have a dark object that can absorb sunlight and it's spinning, it will radiate more heat in the afternoon side than in the morning side. And that slightly moves, changes the orbit of the object. So if you've got a long enough time that you could you know, nudge an object, one way would be to paint it black or uh, if uh, alternately to paint it white if you know, we're black in one side and white in the other. There are also uh, ideas of you know, exploding a bomb on it, not to break it apart, but to have the debris shoot out in one direction and not the other, again, to nudge its orbit. I believe the Planetary Society has uh, something on that called laser bees focusing lasers from several different space vehicles near the asteroid onto one spot to vaporize it and create a jet. Now, one of the cool things is that people like Larry and me love to go to asteroids with spacecraft to study them because we're fascinated by the science. And we can go to NASA and say, oh, in order to protect the planet, we need to go to these asteroids. So there are now a couple of, and not only NASA, but uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, there are a couple of missions in the works to go to asteroids and figure out how we can change and, and nudge things apart. One is called the DART mission. Larry, you want to talk about that? Because it was your student, uh, Andy Rifkin, who's involved in that. You yeah, know? It, it's, it's basically the idea is that, I'm trying to remember the specifics of the DART mission as it is now. Originally, it was supposed to be involved with Bennu, and I think uh, that was next because they didn't want to, depending on the timing of things, 
shove an asteroid that we're in the process of trying to get a sample from. But it's, do you remember which, uh, which, where they're going to now? Is it the name? I, I don't remember the name of it. We'll look it up in, in post. Yeah. Video. Yeah, it's it's the but it's an asteroid with the moon because the idea is that yes. they're going to try to nudge the moon rather than try to nudge the asteroid itself. Yes, Didymos. Yes, near, Didymos. Near. Thank you. Or Thank you. Yeah, Didymos. Thank you. And that's why it's DART. It's the double asteroid redirection yeah. test. So I mean, the other way that they people have thought about doing it, I don't know how viable it is. Is but basically going back to the science fiction of uh, Star Trek of the tractor beam, of basically having a large mass near the asteroid and pulling it along very, very gently by the mutual gravity of the two objects and, and pulling it out of its original orbit, even by a few centimeters or meters. One of the fascinating things in this whole field that has changed in the 20 or 30 years that well, since we first started thinking about it is... It was once thought, well, the big thing, the scary thing is the asteroid that's going to end all life on Earth, or at least all human life. And that would be scary, but those come once every 100 million years. And so the odds of encountering that are small enough that you can, you know, that we've got other things to worry about, like quitting smoking. But with Chelyabinsk, we recognize that a Chelyabinsk event that occurs or impacts a city a Tunguska event that occurs over a populated area is something a size of, you know, a few tens to hundreds of meters across, which are at the limit of what we can detect. And something like that hitting a populated area is not out of the realm of possibility of happening in the next 50 to 100 years. So those tend to be more the kinds of things that we're concentrating now on trying to figure out how to solve and how to worry about, including the FEMA people, the, the people who worry about uh, natural disasters like hurricanes, also running mock tests of what would you do if uh, the report came that something like that was going to come and hit Kansas City. So who is watching the skies for their asteroids right now? There are a number of survey programs going on now, both in Arizona and Hawaii, and soon to be in uh, Southern Hemisphere, of basically surveying the sky as much as they can, looking for things that are moving in orbits that show that they are near Earth asteroids and plotting their orbits and determining, you know, what are their chances of hitting the Earth. Eric Zebro was doing some of that, wasn't it? Yeah, they, they, were, they were doing the follow-up. I was That fits in perfectly with what I was going to mention. The first step is to find them. But a near-Earth object tends to be small and moving quickly. So as soon as you find it, you've only got a window of a month or so to get as many observations as possible to really work out its orbit. Every time you observe something in the sky, you have two coordinates, basically right ascension and declination. In order to know its orbit, you need to have at least six variables well-determined because there's the X, Y, and Z of where it's located and the speed that it's moving in at X, Y, and Z direction. Six coordinates. That means that every time you get in two coordinates, you need, at a very minimum, three very different times when you're observing it. To even, And of course, there's enough error in each of those measurements that you want more than three. So the trick is, once you discover it, to get the word out for other people to observe it and to try to observe it more carefully. What Arecibo was great at is that it could give you 
both its location and its speed, because by bouncing radar off it, you can get a measurement of you know how fast it's moving. And we don't have that capability anymore. I mean, this is a prime example of what amateurs do. There are a lot of serious amateurs with very large, reasonably large telescopes, one meter class telescopes, and you know, a little bit smaller, some a little bit larger, who are doing a lot of this follow-up stuff. And if it weren't for the fact that there is uh, coronavirus going on two weeks ago, in two weeks, I would have been on the Vatican observing near-Earth asteroids in order specifically to do follow-up observations of their orbits in order to improve our understanding of their orbital parameters to you know, make sure that they're not, you know, they don't have Earth's name written on the side of them. Yeah, the Vatican Observatory's Vatican Advanced Technology Telescope, the VAT, is pretty well positioned to do that kind of work because it's big enough that you can see objects down to 19th, 20th magnitude and has a reasonably large field of view. So because you know kind of where to look, but because you don't know exactly where to look, that's why you're looking, you want to be able to, to find it. Larry, how difficult is it to pick up uh, asteroids? that you don't know their precise position? Um, we're, our record is pretty good. It, it depends a lot on when was the last time it was observed. It's been, you know, observed for two days and it's been a month, it's more difficult. Or if it's been observed for four or five days and it's been a year or two, it's even more difficult. But Do you ever our, get fooled? Our, record, our record's pretty good. Do you ever get fooled by something that you thought it was this object from a year ago, but actually it was a totally different object. How can you tell? Uh, basically, what you do is you, in theory, what you're supposed to do is make observations over a two-day period, at which point you have a vector, which is it's going in this direction at this speed. You can calculate its orbit and then track it back to the original orbit and go, oh, yes, they really do match. But yes, once in a while, you do get fooled by an object. So Ob asteroids do get lost. Yes. There was a wonderful story when I was uh, beginning postdoc, and there was a meeting 1979 at the University of Arizona on asteroids, one of the first international meetings about asteroids. And uh, JPL came up with a grand idea of a mission to have flybys past various asteroids. And at the end of describing this mission, um, an elderly asteroid specialist originally from the Czechoslovakia, I think it was uh, Kopal, got up and said, very interesting talk, but I want to point out that one of these asteroids, which I'm hoping I get the number close to right, yeah, asteroid uh, 756 is actually called Asteroid Mildred, and it's named for Mildred Shapley Matthews, who is sitting at the table taking notes because she's going to be editing the proceedings of this book, of this meeting. And the other thing you should know, this asteroid, which was discovered by her father, Harlow Shapley, has been lost since 1916. In other words, the orbit wasn't well enough determined that people could find it again. At which point we're all going, I didn't know my, uh, Mildred was that old. <laughs> it was eventually found. And uh, Mildred lived to be 100. She was the last living person to have an asteroid whose number was under 1,000. Of course, there's prestige to what how, what number your uh, asteroid is. Larry, you've got an asteroid. What's the number? 3439. And mine's in the 4,000s, so you beat me. Yes, and my wife is 5052. Say, so my wife has an asteroid. She's mm -hmm. in the 100,000s. <laughs> you waited a while. 
It just didn't know the right people. It's all who you know. Yes, I... Okay, so getting back to asteroids, uh, in my weekly post for the Vatican Observatory Foundation, I, I've been reporting asteroid numbers, and we just went over a million very recently being reported by the Minor Planet Center and by Na by NASA's uh, Solar System Exploration Site. And one of the things that I, I have in my, my, le my asteroid lecture is like in the 1980s, we knew of about 8,000 of them, and we had like two telescopes looking for them, but when CCDs were introduced in the mid-90s, the discovery rate went through the roof, and then follow-up soft, uh, observation software was written, and again, there was another through the roof, and, and the curve is almost exponential now for asteroid discovery. It is not leveling off. There used to be a book published by a, a Russian and also an English version of it that had all the asteroids, and here are the ones that we need to do follow-up observations and it was getting thicker and thicker and thicker. And once it got to be about two inches thick, they finally gave up. But luckily, the technology caught up, and they were able to do things online. The, the saying in the field with the 90s was, there's more people working at your local McDonald's than there are looking for asteroids coming near the Earth. And that's not the case anymore. But also, this kind of technology, which is in the realm of the advanced amateur, uh, allows a lot of this work to be spread out. One of the places that did asteroid work and kept these catalogs before the Russians took it over in uh, what was then Leningrad, before then it was in Cincinnati. And it's just a matter of who is doing this kind of work and who is interested in it and who's going to take over after that guy retires. Okay. Well, thank you, Brother Guy and Larry. And we will be back later with another podcast. Thank you. Thanks a bunch. Bye-bye.